Okay, Jesse, last week's show was a journey to end the year. What's the story this time around? When a three-day-old baby stops breathing and is rushed to the hospital, his parents believe he is in good hands. Instead, the on-call pediatrician's controversial treatments end the newborn's life. Was it medicine or murder? Six weeks later, a woman is axe-murdered in her own home. And the killer also has direct ties to the baby's case. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back to a brand new year, 2023, as well as Love Murder, a podcast about doing time, connected crimes, and love gone fatally wrong. I cannot believe we're going into our third year of doing this. Wild. It's insane. But for everyone who is new, you can find more information on Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook if you search Love Murder Podcast. And if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app. Subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you are interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod, where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Oh, gosh. I'm so thankful to all of you guys. We had so many wonderful well wishes and comments on social media. And we have a whole bunch of incredible patrons to welcome Andy as well. Welcome to April C, Jordan W, and Libby P, Fallon H, Tori A, and Maria P, Jessica M, J S, and Christine A, Carolyn R, and Anna M, and Jennifer T, Jessia H, and Sally M. My New Year's resolution is to do a little bit more Patreon content. What do you think, Andy? I mean, I think you already do an amazing job, but (laughs) I will continue to motivate you. I also am going to do some Patreon research for everyone as well and see what we can do to improve Patreon in general in addition to more content. So we will probably be reaching out to all of our patrons soon to see how we can continue to benefit you. Yeah. Thanks for being there for us. So This is a doozy of a first 2023 episode. I got to tell you guys, it is just one of those stories. Like I said, all the hard ones always stick with me. And I do promise after this, we're going to have no more baby child death for a very long time. We'll be back to the old love murder, crazy triangle couples and real love murders and less of this really sad, sad story. So trigger warning today, guys, there is obviously, as you could tell from the lead, an infant death. So if that's not your cup of tea, feel free to steer away from this one. There's also some suicidal ideation we'll be talking about as well. So with those really uplifting trigger warnings issued, let's get into it. On January 11th, 1998, there was a wicked snowstorm brewing in the Port Angeles, Washington area. After school activities were canceled and the grocery stores were mobbed as townspeople stocked up on last-minute supplies. By dusk, fat flakes began to fall. In one cozy home, a young couple cuddled up with their newborn baby 
and welcomed in a friend to play board games and wait out the storm. New mother Michelle McInerney was 20 years old, her husband Marty, 22. The couple had been married less than a year and had just welcomed their first child, baby Connor, only three days earlier. That snowy Monday night, the couple's close friend and former roommate Byron Sifford dropped by to meet little Connor and play a board game with the new parents. Michelle and Marty placed the baby in a swing nearby as they took turns rolling the dice. When Michelle noticed that Connor seemed agitated, she stepped away from the game to soothe him. She did some breastfeeding. And after minutes went by, the baby did seem to calm down. Michelle held him as she reclined on the couch where Byron and Marty finished the game. After a few moments more, Michelle realized something was very wrong. She didn't feel like the baby was breathing. So she asked the two men at that point if they could tell if the baby was breathing or not. Not only was newborn Connor not breathing, it appeared that his heart had stopped. They could not find a pulse. Marty began performing infant CPR while Byron called 911. The Port Angeles paramedics arrived less than four minutes later, but little Connor was already turning blue. Because the baby was so tiny, the paramedics had a very difficult time intubating him. He's just a little peanut, and they're having a hard time getting that breathing tube down. After some struggle, it did seem as though they had succeeded, and they began squeezing an air bladder to pump oxygen into his lungs. Unfortunately, they were also unable to get a line into his leg that would have been used normally to administer intravenous drugs to jumpstart his heart. Yeah. They looked for a vein, but he was just too small. So they ended up administering the drugs through his throat tube, which was epinephrine and atropine. These are, from what I gather, drugs traditionally administered to jumpstart your heart, but Connor was not responding to the drugs. Yeah, the epinephrine is the same as what's in an EpiPen. Exactly. Yep. And also, uh, as a caveat, when we get to these medical-related issues and episodes— we are not medical professionals. No, so. no. <laughs> I only know that because Echo was prescribed one. And I was yes. like, epinephrine. I know we have a lot of um, nurses and other medical professionals who listen. And they're always very kind about our <laughs> slaughtering of pronunciations and um, some of the other more nuanced medical details. So thank you guys for bearing with us. My mom specifically said she thought it was so cute hearing you try to describe medical terms. <laughs> Yes, you guys, it's not my forte, even remotely. And yeah, and your mom will know from this one, too, because she works with newborn babies. So yeah, we really should have actually had your mom on to do this show. Cancel. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, by the time the newborn baby made it to the hospital, which, by the way, was located only a mile and a half from the McInerney home, but again, this is a really bad snowstorm that they're in the middle of. Poor Connor had not been breathing, nor had his heart been beating on its own for over 20 minutes. Oh, my God. Still, there was hope. There was both fear and faith involved in handing over this tiny little baby to the talented medical professionals at Olympic Memorial Hospital. The ambulance was greeted by the emergency room crew who put Connor in a baby warmer and whisked him into a room to immediately begin attempting to save his life. The emergency room's lead physician was a 33-year-old ER specialist named Bruce Rowan, and he had his hands full that evening. The heavy snows had brought fresh waves of disaster on top of the usual medical emergencies. 
When he was informed of the incoming newborn, Dr. Rowan had already been tending to a man who had suffered a massive coronary and also a woman who had been run over by a logging truck. Oh, my God. Whoa. Which is very serious. If you guys have ever been, especially when you're up in that Pacific Northwest area, seeing those gigantic logging trucks, I truly can't imagine. So the ER is packed. They were told that this baby is coming in. They were outside, ready to go, ready to save this baby's life. But the problem was that Olympic Memorial was not outfitted with the medical equipment necessary to treat such a small baby. They didn't have a NICU at this location. And nor was Dr. Rowan himself a neonatal or pediatric specialist. So he called nearby Seattle Children's Hospital to prepare a helicopter to transport the baby to the more equipped hospital with professionals better suited to his care. But unfortunately, that request was denied because they were in a snowstorm. There was no visibility. It wouldn't be safe for anyone to try to fly a helicopter in the wintry mess. So the Seattle Children's lead pediatric specialist talked to Dr. Bruce and tried to work him through the steps to revive little Connor. And they also called in the on-call pediatrician, who was a pillar of this local community and a beloved doctor named Eugene Turner. When Dr. Rowan turned Connor over to Dr. Turner, they had managed to get the baby's heart beating again, and he was starting to grow pink again. So it's starting to look up, hopefully. Dr. Rowan, as well as parents Marty and Michelle, continued to fear for the worst but hope for the best. Everyone was aware that there was a very real chance that the baby would not survive the night. And even if Connor did, he was likely to have extensive brain damage. So what no one could have predicted is what actually happened that night behind closed doors at Olympic Memorial. What transpired would end Connor's life, though there was some argument that he was dead already. And it would also confuse and infuriate other medical professionals, those in criminal justice, and especially the grieving parents who were sidelined in their infant son's last gasping moments. Question would linger for years to come. Was what happened to Connor McInerney medical protocol, mercy, or murder? Today, we are going to talk about two doctors in one small town, two untimely deaths, and the families that grieve their lost loved ones. In the end, we'll also discuss whether justice was truly served in a complicated case of bad medical choices, professional arrogance, mental health issues, and probably one of the most frustrating episodes I've ever researched or told you guys. My primary source for this episode was the well-written book, Bitter Medicine by Carlton Smith. So we are going to jump right back in where we were, which was Connor's fight for life. Even though Connor's heart was beating and he was pinking up when Dr. Bruce Rowan handed him off to Dr. Eugene Turner, his prognosis was still grim. Dr. Rowan had done an x-ray to try to figure out why the baby was still not breathing and discovered that the breathing tube had been inserted improperly. And to give these poor paramedics, I guess, any credit, this is a three-day-old baby. They're not clearly trained to be working with this very specific population. Or if they are, it's still difficult in an emergency situation, I imagine, to try to be intubating such a tiny little creature. So they found out that it had gone to one lung but not the other, and 
he just hadn't really been getting any proper oxygen now at this point for 30 minutes, including after he had arrived at the hospital due to this error. So at that point, with 30 minutes without oxygen, it seemed most likely that he was brain damaged, if not brain dead at this point. And that would be true for sure if he was an older human being. But very little is known or at least, you know, I haven't kept up with the latest neonatal neurological developments. But at the time that this was happening, people did not really know, even doctors, what happened in a, the brain of a baby less than one week old because the brain is obviously still developing and there's a chance with a baby that young that their brain could continue growing and overcome or reverse the brain damage potentially. But we don't know. We don't perform tests like that on really new, new, newborn babies, or at least they didn't in this time frame because we're in the 90s at this point. So there was a chance. No one can say for sure that even if he was brain damaged, that it was going to be irreversible at this point because he's such a little guy. But who knows? We don't know if he was ever going to develop into higher brain functioning. And the only way to know if Connor's brain had completely stopped functioning was to test for electric brainwave patterns. But Olympic Memorial did not have the machine necessary to run that test. So... They're running under assumptions at this point, and there, we'll get into some of the tests that are run later on, but for the most part, just given the facts in his condition, it seems most likely that he is brain damaged, if not brain dead. So when Dr. Gene Turner took over at 8.50 p.m., roughly a little more than an hour since Connor had stopped breathing, he did not have high hopes. The new doctor did not believe that he was going to pull through and the crisis was doubly traumatizing to Michelle because baby Connor's late grandmother, Michelle's mother, had also passed away in this very hospital. She died in childbirth. Oh, my goodness. So she knows her mother died here. And now she's outside in the waiting room and her son's with the doctors and it's not looking very good. So I can't even imagine how this poor woman is feeling. Now, everyone felt a little bit more confident that Dr. Turner had taken over. He was a legendary pediatrician in the area and somewhat of a local hero. He was now in his 60s, and they said he had treated at least a third of the babies and children who had been born in the Port Angeles area over the last that many years. Unfortunately, Dr. Turner did not believe that Connor was going to pull through. The nurses administering to Connor recalled that after running a few tests, he said, this guy has had it. And it was true that Connor was not responding to stimuli. For example, when he was pricked with a sharp object, there was no response. And his eyes were fixed, dilated, and non-responsive. But that also could have been an effect of the atropine. Still, Dr. Turner fought for Connor's life for another hour until it was clear that if they stopped bagging if they stopped blowing the air into his lungs, that he was not going to be breathing on his own anymore. So at that point, Turner called the code and said that Connor was dead for all practical purposes. So he then went and delivered the worst news any parents could ever hear. Their baby was essentially brain dead and without the artificial respiration, Connor was likely going to die. So they wanted them to come into the room to be with their child for his last moments. 
Michelle and Marty did agree to allow the hospital to end artificial respiration. The tube was removed, and both Marty and Michelle were allowed to hold Connor and rock him in a blanket and be in a dark room alone and quiet with him until he passed away. At 9.54, Dr. Turner pronounced Connor officially dead. The baby was placed in a warming bassinet, and Marty and Michelle left to go home and grieve their three-day-old baby. The worst had happened, but had it. An ER nurse named Lori Boucher entered Connor's room later to restock the crash cart and take Connor to the morgue. As she was cleaning the room, she heard the baby take a breath. It was about 16 minutes after Connor had been declared dead. Then she heard it again. Then Connor was gasping once every 8 to 15 seconds. Lori put her hand on the baby's tiny chest and discovered that his heart was beating. She immediately rushed to get Dr. Turner, who discovered that Connor's oxygen level was now up to 95% without bagging. What? His coloring was pink. However, the baby was still neurologically unresponsive. Lori asked Dr. Turner at that point if she could call Marty and Michelle to come back to the hospital. But Dr. Turner believed that Connor was so badly brain damaged that he would still soon likely die and did not want to further traumatize the parents by giving them hope, calling them back and saying their son died once more. No. Yeah, this is a hard one. Lori stood by as Dr. Turner made some questionable medical choices. Now, this first one is just like we talked about with the EMTs. It's really difficult to put this one, especially just on Dr. Turner. The respiratory therapist was not available at that time to put the endotracheal tube down Connor's throat. So both doctors, Turner and Rowan, who had been called back in, tried at least 15 times, but they weren't getting it. And the baby's throat was now, in the book, they said it was a bloody mess, which oh, hurts my heart. So they were not managing to get this tube down the baby's throat. He then suggested that maybe they could jumpstart the baby's nervous system by wrapping the newborn in ice-cold towels. This did nothing once again, and at that point, the baby was clearly in distress. His oxygen saturation was falling, and Dr. Turner asked if he could have the room. He asked everyone to clear out so he could be with the child. The nurses left, but shortly before midnight, one of the nurses, Vicky, heard an alarm go off and returned to the room to assist Dr. Turner. Vicky said the following, according to Bitter Medicine. As I approached the monitor, about two feet from Dr. Turner, I saw that he had the infant in his arms. I saw the infant's face, and I saw that Dr. Turner was pinching his nose. Oh, my God. I knew you were going to go there, and that's the most horrifying thing I've ever heard. Oh, my God. I was confused by what he was doing. I walked to the monitor and I turned off the alarm. He said something like, he could not stand to watch this go on much longer. I was upset by what I saw and I left immediately and found my supervisor, Anne. I immediately reported to her what I saw and I believe she would follow up with the proper steps. I saw her go into the room with Dr. Turner and the baby. So both Anne and Lori, who also eventually came into the room, so three nurses now, would also witness Dr. Turner putting his hands over the baby's mouth and nose. Is he losing his mind? This is insane like, to me. Like, you don't get to make that decision. Obviously not. No. And they're just all in there with him? Like, that's insane. 
he was basically acting like it was just another medical procedure. Like he was just, he was acting like he wasn't doing anything wrong. And that's why everything was even more upsetting to them. He was acting in a way that they weren't supposed to be responding to what he was doing. Now, Dr. Rowan, Bruce, was already upset about the way the treatment was going, how they couldn't get the tube down the baby's throat, that Dr. Turner didn't want to notify the family that he had wrapped this little baby in these cold towels in a way that he hadn't heard about doing to revive an infant. So he had gotten on the phone with Seattle Hospital because he wanted to talk to the specialist at the Children's Hospital about what was going on because he was concerned that Dr. Turner's methods were not working or were actually harmful to Connor. So he hung up after having that conversation and Lori ran in the room and asked him to intervene in room 2A where Dr. Turner remained with baby Connor. She said, please go in there. Something horrible is happening. And by the time Dr. Bruce Rowan arrived, baby Connor was already blue again, not breathing, and at this point, very clearly deceased. I mean, that's what will happen when you suffocate someone. Talk about defenseless three-day-old baby. Who's already majorly suffering from medical issues. Yeah. Lori and the other nurses were absolutely traumatized by the events of the evening and reported the incident to higher-ups who began an internal investigation. Michelle and Marty were notified six days after Connor's death by Dr. Turner himself about what had happened. So what did he say to them? So according to Bitter Medicine, Dr. Turner explained that sometimes the body might go on living even after the brain had died, although there was no hope of recovery. And that was why he'd ended Connor's primitive physical existence before natural events had taken their course to spare Marty and Michelle any further suffering. And poor Marty and Michelle during this meeting are completely grieving. They're gobsmacked. They don't know what's going on. And they just said, okay, thank you. Like it was reported that they took it very well. But I don't really know how else you would take it having not been there and not having any medical training and being only 20 and 22 and having lost your first child together. For Michelle, she's postpartum. I think that I'd be so confused and grieving that I would say, okay, and, and try to trust the people that you entrust the care of your child to. There's also a major issue, too, with how idolized this doctor is in the community. Exactly. So the same day that Dr. Turner met with the McInerney's, the hospital board met to review the facts of the case. And just like in our good nurse episode, they basically decided to not report the incident to law enforcement and instead to deal with the situation internally. They even issued an edict to the employees that were aware of Connor's death to not speak about it while they continued to investigate it on their own. To several of the hospital employees, it seemed like they had absolutely no intention of actually getting justice for Connor. And eventually, one of the EMTs went to his neighbor, who was a deputy sheriff, about the whole situation. That deputy went to a detective sergeant who worked in homicide. Now, this detective had three children who were all being treated by Dr. Turner and loved him, just like the rest of the town. Loved the guy, trusted him, thought he was the best pediatrician in the whole world. 
But even this guy whose kids were in Dr. Turner's care said that what had happened did not sound like medical procedure. It did not sound like a mercy killing. It sounded like first degree murder. Wow. So the police began to investigate Dr. Turner for murder and the investigation got leaked to the local paper. When this happened, shockingly, or maybe I shouldn't be surprised about this, the community came out in droves to support Dr. Turner. I, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. Personally, for me, I thought that smothering a three-day-old baby kind of trumps everything. It does. But if he has become this, like I said, idolized pillar in the community and all of these other people support him and this is just one three-day-old kid whose parents people don't know, you know. And they believe in him and they think, well, he must have had a reason or these are lies against him. Yeah, Eugene Turner was unbelievably well-respected. He had been married to his wife, Norma, for decades at this point. She was also involved in local politics, in the community. I mean, they were both just pillars. Dr. Turner donated property and time to Habitat for Humanity. He served as a youth soccer referee. The Turners had a farm. They donated like a huge percentage of their vegetables and farm-raised beef to food pantries and families in need. He taught volunteer health classes. Dr. Turner also hosted an annual picnic for children with disabilities, complete with pony rides. I mean, to everyone who knew this guy, he was a saint. It sounds like he did a lot of amazing things. He did, and that's what makes this so confusing. And and I'm sure that that's also why the nurses were so traumatized by this. Because if he can do all these great works and he can do them for so many generations and treat so many children successfully, then how could he do what he did? And I just think that everyone was willing to give him the benefit of the doubt, though, because of his prior great works. Well, as you can imagine, this was a very thorny investigation, given who this guy is and his position in the community. And it was not helped by the gray areas of what the legal definition of death is. In some states and countries, brain death legally counts as death. So if baby Connor was already legally dead, could a murder take place? And does this have like, aren't there like Kevorkian laws in Washington? There's also, yeah, Washington has euthanasia laws. I don't know if they did in 1998 at this time, but they've been more in the United States on the forefront of death with dignity or something like that. And so I also, it's so random. I was up in Saranac area and I ended up going to a bookstore and it was just like kind of like going in a random, (laughs) random area. And I found this book called Rethinking Life and Death, The Collapse of Our Traditional Ethics and just picked it up out of interest. And guys, I'm telling you, this floored me. I did not read this entire book by Peter Singer, who's a well-known philosopher and ethicist, I think. So I didn't read the whole book, but I read a couple chapters and just standing there. And I was thinking about this case. And he wrote, why do people refuse to accept that brain death is really death? One possible explanation is that even though people know that the brain dead are dead, it is just too difficult for them to abandon obsolete ways of thinking about death. Another possible explanation is that no one believes in brain death because they can see that the brain dead are not really dead. Meaning if you're seeing somebody still breathing and you can feel a pulse, it's impossible for our brains to connect that they are 
dead somehow. I would argue that we might never be able to fully commit to the idea that brain death is death because we're human beings who believe in hope, that have faith, that will never, I would never let any of my loved ones go that easily. I wouldn't write them off. I mean, even if I was wrong, I'd probably still be looking for a miracle. Yeah. And you can't see what's, I mean, obviously there's MRIs and and CT scans, but like you can't, as a person just looking at another person, you can't see what the functionality of the brain is. So... And there are times, too, when people are brain dead technically in comas and they come out of it and are completely revived. So it is hard to it's like it's an unknown. It's a weird ethical medical ethical area. But to this specific point, we don't even know if baby Connor was brain dead. I know. That's the thing. Olympia Memorial did not have an EEG machine which would have helped doctors Turner and Rowan determine if Connor had any viable brain functioning. If Dr. Turner wasn't sure, why not keep Connor alive enough for the the weather to clear up? They could helicopter him to Seattle Children's where they did have that machine and they could determine the newborn's brain functioning at that point. Yeah. And even in the absence of that, if Dr. Turner believed so firmly that Connor was going to die, why not let nature take its course? And I mean, I think the biggest thing that gets to me as a parent is not notifying the parents and letting them make a decision. Uh, no kidding. And also doing it in front of nurses is kind of feels like a power thing, too. That's what I was thinking. It's wild. It's so, so intense that you're like, you know that that's wrong. This isn't your call. And you're still like bold enough to do it in front of the nurses and think that it's OK, that you can just do whatever the fuck you want. Like, that is even more terrifying to me. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that is a big component about why I believe that there is cause for criminal charges in this case because this was a case of a doctor playing God. And that's not a doctor's choice to make. I think criminal prosecution might be necessary to send a message to other medical professionals that this isn't okay, that's not your choice, and parents have to be notified. When you know more, you can do more. What if you could use science to discover more about your body? Find out what you need for your healthier tomorrow with Everly Well. Everly Well is digital healthcare designed for you with personalized results and accessible tools for long-term health. With over 30 at-home lab tests and high-quality vitamins and supplements, you'll be able to find the perfect test for you or your loved one. The Women's Health, Food Sensitivity, and Celiac Disease Screening Tests are only a few of the options. Here's how it works. Everly Well ships products straight to you or your loved ones with everything needed in one package. If you ordered an at-home lab test, the sample can simply be collected at home and shipped back to a certified lab in the prepaid envelope included with the test. Digital physician-reviewed results are sent straight to your preferred device in just days. If you ordered vitamins and supplements, you can start adding them into your daily routine right away. It's so simple. Over 1 million people have trusted Everly Well to support their health and wellness goals. And now you can help your loved ones do the same. I've told you guys before about Everly Well's great food sensitivity comprehensive test. Learning about how different foods interacted with my body has made a huge difference. I also love their women's health test, which is their most comprehensive hormone panel for women at all stages of life. It provides detailed information on 11 key biomarkers that can help you discover what might be going on with any symptoms that are keeping you from feeling like yourself. 
They also have a ton of specific tests. They have a thyroid panel, which can help understand how some of the most important hormones in your body are functioning, as well as allergy tests, heart health tests, sleep and stress tests, and so much more. The sleep and stress test is particularly cool. Instead of just loading up on melatonin, I was actually able to learn more about how a set of key hormones were impacting my circadian rhythm and my ability to sleep well. For listeners of the show, EverlyWell is offering a special discount of 20% off an at-home lab test at everlywell.com slash lovemurder. That's everlywell.com slash lovemurder for 20% off your next at-home lab test. Everlywell.com slash lovemurder. Despite the public's majority opinion, the police did also feel that this was a criminal act and that it needed to be investigated as such. So they began to interview the nurses and doctors who also attended Connor McInerney. One of the doctors was, of course, Dr. Bruce Rowan, the emergency room specialist. So let's talk about Dr. Bruce. Bruce Rowan was born in February of 1964 and raised in a small Idaho town known for its annual fiddle festival. Despite being a successful physician, Bruce had always felt that he lived in the shadow of his five older siblings. The four oldest were smart, successful, great athletes who ultimately attended Ivy League schools or like literally the next rung right below Ivy League. One of his brothers went to Harvard. His closest in age sister, Peggy, had been born developmentally disabled due to complications at birth. Bruce was depressed for most of his life. He would later claim that he had suicidal thoughts as early as 12 years old. But no one could confirm that that was true or not. He said that he didn't tell anyone about this suicidal ideation because he was embarrassed by it. So he claims that he's felt that way for a very long time. But there's no record of hospitalization or of attempts that we know of at that age. Well, back then there wasn't talk about it ever. No. So that would make sense, too, that he didn't want to talk about it. Of course. He also had never seen a mental health professional, but when he became a doctor, he started self-prescribing antidepressants, which is not... That's get not a, ideal. Get a professional. You're a professional. Find a professional. That lifelong history with depression paired with the aspect of the potential brain damage being the cause of Connor's murder or death, depending on how you look at it, something that reminded him of his sister was said to cause a massive triggering effect to Bruce. Bruce's saving grace had always been his wife, Debbie. Debbie and Bruce had grown up in their hometown together and eventually reconnected when Bruce was in medical school. While both Bruce and Debbie were aligned in the fact that they were both empathetic and they hoped to help others in their careers, otherwise their personalities were like night and day. Bruce was more introspective and prone to depression, while Debbie was feisty, ebullient, outspoken, and outgoing. She was able to buoy Bruce and kind of shore him up. While Bruce could be rigid, she was more go with the flow. Warm and nurturing, Debbie didn't mind taking care of Bruce, and she actually rather liked it. She's a woman who wants to live in kindness and service to other people. And you see this dynamic, though, which can be healthy, but then it can be really, really unhealthy, where one partner relies on the other partner for absolutely everything. Yeah. And I think that at the beginning, Debbie did not really see that. She liked 
being the pillar of strength for Bruce. The young couple also share a desire to travel and see the world together. They someday hope to blend acts of service with travel. So they figured that the reason why he was more of a contractor at the ER was because he could make a ton of money for several months out of the year. And then the remaining months out of the year, they could travel and do volunteer work in other countries. And that was the basis of their idea of how they wanted to formulate their life for that shared vision of travel and acts of service. Pretty soon after reconnecting, the relationship grew romantic. And like I said, Bruce was getting pretty dependent on Debbie's care. Five weeks after moving in together, Debbie took a trip to California to attend a friend's wedding against Bruce's wishes. He could not go because he was in the middle of a psychiatry rotation in med school. And he obviously had classes, he had work, he had stuff to do. But he was also having a very hard time. He did not like his psychiatry rotation. He would later say he felt inept and unable to control some voice inside of him that he wasn't a good doctor, he wasn't a good person. And this voice told him to end his life. So on the day that Debbie flew to California, Bruce bought a ton of Unisom and took pill after pill in his car under this overpass. Instead of passing out, though, he began to hallucinate, which scared him enough to drive to the hospital and get help. Yeah, because Unisom's one of the safer sleep pills. Yeah, he took a whole jar and it just probably would make you see things yeah i've stayed awake on ambien before and you get real weird yeah this is not a fun trip it is hallucinations that's why like it's so you got to just give in and go to bed when you're close your eyes (laughs) shut your eyes put your sound machine on (laughs) your silk eye mask and get into bed do not stay awake on on sleeping pills is not a pretty sight. There was one time I did by accident and I tried to play a fun game called, we were living in San Francisco, how far can I get outside of the house naked before Nathaniel can catch me? Oh my God. <laughs> Poor Nathaniel. It was the lobby. That's how far a guy's guy got. That was the end of that game. Naked. Yep, naked. Okay. So he started to hallucinate. He freaked out. He did get himself to the hospital at that point, and his stomach was pumped. He was committed for psychiatric care for five days, a psychiatric hold. And the doctors just chalked the event up to severe stress based on medical school. Yeah, I mean, it's also pretty uh, ironic that he's having these psychiatric breaks while he's supposed to be learning about psychiatric. Yes, Indeed. Details in medical school. I mean, it's obvious that he needs to be treated himself. By a professional, indeed, and not treat himself. Especially when he admitted that he wasn't very good at his psych rotation. Well, yeah, and treating yourself isn't taking a whole thing of Unisom. Like, he's not... It's kind of like being your own lawyer, too. Yeah, it's like, please don't. (laughs) Don't do it. Yeah. So, Debbie, of course, as soon as she found out about this, immediately turned around and came back, canceled her trip, canceled attending the wedding. And in the end, Bruce got his way. He didn't want Debbie to go and she came back. And so we're getting a big red flag here because as much as I feel for Bruce going through something, which is obviously a mental health issue, but at the same time, threatening suicide or 
we've seen it in the past with other controlling relationships or doing something like this to yourself to hurt your loved one for doing something you didn't want them to do. Like on the very day that she flew to California after he asked her not to go, that is controlling behavior. So we'll give him, we'll extend some grace to him because clearly he's not well, but that's not a good sign. It is not. It is not. But Debbie did not see it as controlling behavior either. She just saw somebody who could not live or focus or thrive without her. And I do think because she is such a helper type that there was maybe a feeling of that this is natural. He just needs me. And as long as I'm there to support him, he'll be okay. So she supported him completely. He decided to take a leave of absence from medical school, which is a very good idea at this point. And the couple moved briefly to Alaska where Bruce got a job as a fisherman and Debbie drove a taxi. This was, Bruce would later say, the happiest time in his life. He should have given up his ideas of med school and found a profession similar to being an Alaskan fisherman because he said that he loved the work. He loved the people he worked with who were from like all walks of life and that it was this like physical united work where he didn't have to be cerebral or worry about life and death. It was just being out there and living. Yeah. But he had the pressures from his family. So what are we going to do? Exactly. It would have been good Which again, he would have been able to talk through this in therapy. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say the same thing. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. This, this one. Therapy this is great. Is, <laughs> this episode is not sponsored by BetterHelp, but just get yourself some help. Sponsored by Go to Therapy. So when fishing season was over, the couple did end up traveling the world. So they went internationally all over. I think that they went to South America. I know that they were in India for a little while. But at some point, Debbie got dysentery. I think she might have gotten it twice, the poor thing. And at that point, she was like, you know what? I'm ready to settle down. Let's go back to the States, figure out our lives and the next steps. So they did that. And Bruce ended up finishing his leave and going back to medical school where he had been. And the couple married in November of 1991. Debbie helped Bruce get through his graduation from medical school and his challenging internship. She also obtained a master's degree in social work for herself. Amazing. Wow. More than anything else, Debbie loved children. She wanted to work with them and she certainly wanted to be a mother. The couple suffered fertility issues that prevented them from having biological children, but Debbie was really excited to adopt. She was genuinely gung-ho. This was not really a second choice for her. I think even if they had been able to have biological children, she would have also looked into adoption potentially. After a very long adoption process, they were finally granted custody of a baby girl in November of 1995, and they named their daughter Annika. Cute. In 1996, Bruce got the job working in the ER at Olympic Memorial Hospital, which is where our story began, and the family moved to Port Angeles. They bought a modest house and even adopted a little lamb as a pet for Hanukkah. Excuse me? They named, they named the lamb Wooly. Okay, so cute. This is beyond cute. I want a lamb. We should get you a lamb. No, I don't know if they Where would, would really... your lamb... It's too... It's, they would not thrive. No, they would not thrive. They would not be woolly. <laughs> no. They'd be like, no, it's hot. There's literally nothing they can eat no. in your yard, too. It's just cacti Rocks. and pebbles. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? We'll get a lamb and you guys can come visit our That lamb. sounds good. Okay. So, yeah, it looked like everything was like picture perfect. They have the baby. 
She's working in social work. They have Wooly the Lamb. Everything is great. But as 1997 turned into 1998, Bruce and Debbie's marriage began to show cracks. Mm. Debbie no longer wanted to travel the globe half time like they had discussed early on in their relationship. She wanted to become grounded in her community where she had founded an educational co-op for parents of toddlers and preschool age children. Okay, cool. Yep. She wanted a stable base for Annika and she wanted to buy a bigger house. But the reason why she wanted to buy a bigger house is so wonderful. She wanted to operate a foster care facility for troubled youth if she got a bigger house. She had worked with the teenage population while getting her master's and believed that all children, no matter how old or how troubled, deserved a loving home environment. So she really thought that she could provide that with Bruce and Annika, but Bruce refused. He told Debbie, this was his big reason, which is confounding to me, that having troubled teenagers in the home could make him a target for some teenager to bring false accusations of molestation on him. Okay, I thought you were going to say, like, that it could negatively impact Annika. That was the only thing that I was going to be like, meh, but that's strange, and that seems a little bit of a projection, doesn't it? Well, it definitely gives me red flag vibes because... Like you, that was the only thing I thought, will this negatively affect the current children in the home? It's a bizarre first excuse to come from. Yeah, like where is that even coming from? Well, Debbie was upset about this, obviously. This was kind of her ultimate dream. But after much negotiation, the couple decided that they wouldn't do the foster care facility, but that they would begin the process to adopt a second child instead. And Bruce really didn't even really want to do this. He was reluctant and he did not seem all of that interested in having a second baby. Carlton Smith wrote, Later psychiatrists and others were to point to these facts as evidence of a conflict between Bruce and Debbie that was slowly gathering strength. While Debbie was doing what mothers do, nesting, putting down roots, preparing to raise a family, Bruce was feeling increasingly tied down. For Bruce, the point of life was to travel, to heroically do for others in less fortunate circumstances. Having things like property, friends, getting more children, community connections threatened to preclude escape for him. Even more significantly, some thought where before Debbie had done for Bruce, taking care of him, bucking him up, making him the center of her existence, now Debbie's major focus was on Annika. That, some later said, became a threat to Bruce. It was, in a way, as if Debbie was no longer willing to place Bruce first in her life to give him the primacy that had allowed him to cope with this chronic depression for so many years. So adding another child onto this, then he's going to get bumped again. You can't look at it that way, though. If you're mentally well, you don't look at it that way. Yes. Yeah. If you're mentally well, you don't look at it like this. And then, of course, came the death of baby Connor, which triggered all of this inside of him. In the weeks following baby Connor's death, Bruce and Debbie got their own affairs in order. So the excuse was that they were potentially having a second child and it was time that they wrote a will and got their life insurance together, which I totally agree with. They purchased life insurance. Debbie would receive $1.25 million in the event of Bruce's death. And Bruce would receive a half million dollars in the event of Debbie's death. They also named Debbie's sister and brother-in-law as Annika's guardians. 
In February of 1998, Debbie injured her leg very badly. Wooly the lamb got out and she jumped a fence trying to catch Wooly. And apparently she ended up falling and hurting her leg in a very gruesome way. She tore some tendons and it required some major surgery. Like They had to actually take tendons from another area of her body and graft them. So this was not a pleasant experience. After the surgery, Debbie was unable to walk and was completely reliant upon Bruce. Now, this was a very unwelcome turnaround for Bruce. Again, we go back to Debbie had always taken care of him. And then he didn't even like it when she was focusing on Annika. But now he was forced to take care of both Debbie and Annika and no one's taking care of him. Thank goodness that they hadn't adopted the other baby yet. I know. On March 1st, 1998, Bruce took Annika shopping and they bought a large number of plastic garbage bags, a wooden baseball bat, an outdoor vacuum cleaner, and some junk food. Debbie had been really wanting to see the just-released movie Titanic. So Bruce got a babysitter and took Debbie on her crutches to a 4.30 matinee. Debbie absolutely loved it. She loved the romance depicted in the film. But there was another scene that really stuck in Bruce's mind that he would discuss later. It was the scene where a deck officer shoots a man who was panicking and trying to get in one of the rescue boats that was reserved for women and children. I vividly remember. Yes. And after the deck officer shoots the man, he then turns the gun on himself. Yeah. Because he's like, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. After the movie, the couple returned home where they made pleasant conversation with the babysitter who claimed that everything seemed completely normal, the babysitter said later. Well, things were far from normal. That very night at 12.30 in the morning, a young man came across what appeared to be a car accident. A late model Subaru Legacy was sprawled sideways across a drainage ditch. In the back seat was a child's car seat. But thankfully, no child was in the car. There was, however, a woman lying in the front seat. The woman appeared to be dead and had two very deep bloody gashes to her forehead. That woman was Debbie Rowan. When the police arrived, they immediately knew that Debbie had not incurred her injuries in the car accident. Blood was everywhere, but the windshield hadn't broken. So none of the windshield, the windows, anything that would have caused those deep gashes had not shattered. There was just nothing that she could have cut her head that badly on. Furthermore, her teeth were broken. It looked as though she had been bludgeoned and then potentially cut with something or the other way around. The pattern of bloodstains also indicated that Debbie had been bleeding before she was put inside the car. Running the plates, they discovered that the car was registered to Bruce Rowan, who lived only about 200 yards away from the car crash site. Approaching the Rowan's house at 2.15 in the morning, they discovered Debbie's crutches in the driveway, which was bizarre enough, but then when they rang the bell, Bruce did not seem particularly tired or sleepy like he had been woken up. And then he also didn't seem particularly worried about his wife's whereabouts. He said Debbie had gone to the grocery store around midnight. When the police told him that it seemed as though she had been in a fatal car accident, Bruce did drop to his knees and begin crying. But he very quickly recovered and began offering possibilities to how this accident could have happened. He said, well, maybe her cast had gotten in the way of her driving and that's how she got into an accident. Or, you know what? And this is 
just weird. Our neighbor's dog likes to drop rocks onto the driver's side floor of our car. Maybe one of those rocks had wedged on or around a pedal somehow. Okay, detective, doctor, you can just stop. (laughs) That's what the police said. They were completely flabbergasted at this new line of thinking. So in review, a woman who cannot walk decides at midnight to drive to the grocery store without her crutches, crashes her car 200 yards from her house because of a rock-dropping dog that is somehow getting into your car while the door is closed. Rock-dropping dog. Rock-dropping dog. And has injuries that cannot be explained by a car accident. This is not adding up. We're going to have to take you down to the precinct. (laughs) Have to look into this one. Unsurprisingly, the police were instantly suspicious. Over hours of conversation in the early morning, the detectives got Bruce to allow for a search of their house and told him straight up that they suspected foul play. Now, of course, they're playing it off at the beginning. They're saying, look, Bruce, we got to be straight with you. Looks like somebody injured her before she got in her car. So who do you think would hurt her? Does anyone have access to your house? Who could get in here? So they're not straight up saying you did it, buddy, but they're letting him know that they know something happened. So they began to drill down on questioning him while he's still in the home. And Bruce interrupted them, saying at that point that he had to check on Annika, who was three years old. She was still sleeping at this point. The detectives followed him to his daughter's room, where she seemed still fully out, but safe, thank goodness. And they were still just following him. So he said, actually, can I use the bathroom? No. So he goes into the bathroom And there was a police officer outside that they were doing kind of a perimeter search as well. And this police officer could see through the bathroom window and could see that he was pacing and kind of muttering to himself. And so that officer radioed to the other guys and said, he's going to run. We've got a runner here. He's the way he's looking is like as soon as he gets a chance, he's going to bolt. So stay on top of him. But Annika's room was right across from the bathroom and maybe while they were dealing with this communication he somehow managed to get out of the bathroom and into her room no yep and from here things went completely nuts bruce had evidently slipped a knife into his pocket at some point and while he was in annika's bedroom he began stabbing himself in the throat and chest At some point, I don't know if she started waking up and he started realizing what he was doing in front of his child. He did scoop up Annika and he came out to the kitchen where the police were still standing. And he kind of said something like mumbly about Annika being hungry and needing to eat breakfast. And they immediately noticed that he was covered with blood. The child was very scared, obviously. So they said, we'll feed her. And they took her away from him took her into another room, and then immediately cuffed Bruce, who no longer had the knife on him. They actually found the knife in Annika's room where he had apparently plunged this knife into his chest five or six times while standing over his three-year-old daughter. So he goes to the hospital. He was taken into custody. On the way to the hospital, he keeps saying that he had missed his aorta, which he did. But he had managed to nick the left ventricle of his heart, and he had passed out from blood loss by the time he reached the hospital. So had they not been 
watching him had he not brought Annika into the kitchen, there's a good chance he would have died. I mean, that's all you have to say after you murdered your fucking wife and like traumatized your kid is that you missed your Iota. There were some big questions too about whether he intended to kill Annika. Why not do that in the bathroom? If he was already in the bathroom, he already had the knife in the bathroom. There's like so many other things that we could be talking about right now. And that's, <laughs> and you're just, yeah, you know, like you're just like, oh, I miss the aorta. And why would you do that in your daughter's room if you weren't going to kill your daughter as well? I mean, thank goodness, but. Ugh. And she's still so young that hopefully, I mean, this sort of thing you never get over anyway, but hopefully there's a chance for so much growth. Ugh, but I really, truly cannot imagine. So the police very quickly got a search warrant and there was blood evidence that he had killed Debbie everywhere. It was pretty obvious that Debbie had been killed in the house and then moved to the car in an attempt to make her murder look like a car accident. Doesn't work, guys. Does not work. We've seen this one before. Does not work. So based on Debbie's autopsy, the forensic evidence at the scene and later, Bruce's own confession, here's what happened. There's still no reason given, but around midnight or so, for whatever reason, Bruce went out to the woodpile near their house, picked up an axe, crept up to the bedroom, and brought the axe blade onto Debbie's sleeping head at least twice, perhaps as many as four times. Then Bruce went and retrieved the small baseball bat that he had bought with their daughter earlier in the day and smashed it into Debbie's jaw and lower face, breaking many of her teeth. Tooth fragments and blood spatter were found all over the master bedroom. Bruce then loaded Debbie's body into a lawn cart, which he wheeled to the car. He then dumped her crutches on the driveway, which I think he forgot about. I think that he planned to put in the back seat, but with doing all of this, tomfoolery I think that he forgot about them and then he drove a very short distance to where there was an incline he arranged her body in the car and then he used a rock to put down the gas pedal which is why he made that asinine claim that a dog dropped a rock in their car and she went down the incline in the car after he had finished that, Bruce went home to try to clean the crime scene. Bloody paper towels were found absolutely everywhere, and bloody clothes were found in the washer. Bruce had just finished stripping the bloody bed sheets, and that's when the police arrived, which is why he didn't seem particularly like he had just woken up at that point. I mean, obviously, the big question is why? Bruce, at this point, when they're discovering all of this, is still knocked out in the hospital. But soon the detectives were able to determine the issues that the Rowans had been having in their marriage. Also, quite coincidentally, the day that Dr. Bruce Rowan had murdered his wife was the same day that her $500,000 life insurance policy had gone into effect. Were they having money issues? It doesn't seem like that badly. It was typical stuff. I mean, he had medical school to pay off, but it wasn't like they were very hard up and he made a lot of money. Yeah, even like the issues that they were having, though, the marital issues, it's like that's not like nearly as large as some of the issues we've seen with couples on the show before, you know? Yeah, it feels like relatively smaller potatoes. They had been compromising. They had been working towards things together still at that point. 
So it's closer to a million dollars in today's money, but he still makes a ton of money as a doctor at this point. So it doesn't make much sense. Bruce's defense attorney would later argue that Bruce was too smart as a doctor to kill his wife on the very day that a sizable life insurance policy went into effect and that only a crazy person would think that they would not be looked at by the police after this stunning coincidence. But crazy was exactly what Bruce's defense attorney was going for. Like you pointed out, Andy, there hadn't been real problems in the Rowan marriage. The only factor that had contributed to this senseless tragedy, his attorney would later say, was Bruce's mental illness. Bruce's attorneys would contend that Debbie's murder was a direct result of Bruce getting triggered by three-day-old Connor's death at the hands of another trusted colleague and medical professional. A psychologist who met with Bruce after he regained consciousness said the following, Bruce's chronic depression was a result of his inability to exert control over his inner self, the roiling sea of emotions so dominated by his demanding, shaming empathy. The death of Connor McInerney had triggered a severe depression, which, after Debbie's Achilles injury with all the pressures entailed by the role reversal and unexpected pressures on Bruce as a domestic caregiver, had culminated in a psychotic episode on the night of March 1st. Bruce's disjointed recollections of the evening's event was evidence of his psychotic disassociative state at the time of his crime, the psychologist said. Whoa. I don't know about empathy. Yeah. I, uh... That's a good lawyer. That's a good lawyer. Yeah, I don't know about his ceaseless empathy being the cause of his psychotic break here. But I mean, if you're like, if you spend, how old is he at the time of the crime? 33. Wow, so young. Jesus Christ. I was going to say, like, if you spend, I thought you were going to say like half a life. But yeah, I mean, you spend 33 years still never being treated for severe depression at a certain point. You're going to like. I certainly felt it reading about this and looking into it. That there's a confusion there, that there's, this is obviously horrific, but what is the cost of years of untreated mental illness? Disassociated state doesn't sound far off. You know what I mean? Like, it really doesn't. But this is why this is such a hard case, because, again, we never excuse behavior, but we seek to understand it. Yeah, trying to wrap your head around it. (laughs) Yes, trying to wrap your head around how something like this could happen, and it's so hard to connect it to empathy and to connect it to the death of a a three-day-old baby, especially given that he is a ER doctor. He has to see death and destruction and the things that humans do to each other all the time, the abuse that we suffer because of one another. So what was it about Connor that six weeks earlier triggered an ax murder? Or is it just a really good legal defense? I know. It's kind of crazy because I feel like you did mention earlier that the death of Connor triggered feelings that he had when he was younger about his sister as well. But I also think that like human nature and power as well, him seeing another medical professional in the community I don't know if we covered really what ended up happening to Turner. We haven't. I was just about to get back to it. Yeah. But like if he ended up getting away with it or he actually saw him do it, regardless of whether he got away with it legally or not, if you're already not fully well, that has to instill some sort of like fucked up power twists in your head. It didn't. At the point of Debbie's murder, he had not yet been charged. 
So while Bruce was awaiting trial, he was remanded to a rubber room in a psych ward and Dr. Eugene Turner's fate still hung in the balance. In August of 1998, he was finally charged with second degree murder for the death of Connor McInerney. And this was a terrible, 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 terrible time for the McInerneys in so many ways. Not only had they lost a baby, the media was all over the case. And Dr. Turner's supporters began to implicate the McInerneys in their baby's death, asking why the investigation was being focused on the doctor who tried to save Connor's life and not the home where the baby first stopped breathing. So they're getting looked at, even though the medical professionals were saying it was nothing that the McInerney's did. And people are coming against them in the community. I know that Marty had a job at a shoe store and he had to quit it because so many people were coming and saying terrible things to him. The baby didn't die at home, people. Yeah. And they did everything they possibly could to revive the child. And now their son's name and life was being pulled into another horrific crime that was getting front page news. A doctor who axe murdered his wife. There's no words for how this tragedy is being compounded for them. They did file a suit against the hospital and they were just trying to get on with their lives and have some sort of recourse. Because even if you don't count what happened with Dr. Turner, it seems like a lot of the baby's medical care had been botched right from the beginning. Dr. Turner loudly defended his actions and told reporters that he actually looked forward to his day in court where he could explain himself It would, however, be his former colleague, Dr. Bruce Rowan, who would first face a jury of their peers. Yeah. And then it's also it's so insane because Dr. Rowan's the one that was supposed to be like working beside him on the baby case. I'm sure they would have called him for some sort of testimony. Yeah. Yep. Wild. And they can't rely on anything he says at this point. Right. That's the problem. If he ends up getting proven legally insane throughout this process because that's the defense they're going with, then how is the prosecution going to use him as a reliable witness in any case against Dr. Turner? And either way, he murdered his wife, whether he's crazy or not. I'm sorry. Yeah, because either way, if he gets off on reason of insanity, then he's not mentally well. And if he gets convicted of straight up murder, then he's just a convicted murderer. Yeah. So like, are we really going to him for anything? This is not good news for the prosecution. Are we sure there wasn't like something in the water? (laughs) look into that hospital. What was in the break room? So Bruce's trial began on October 5th, 1998. The prosecution argued that Bruce had killed his wife in cold blood because she was pressuring him to have another child and was no longer interested in the lifestyle that they had agreed upon early on in their relationship. That paired with the payday of the insurance policy set up a tidy motivation. He prepared for the murder by buying trash bags and the baseball bat earlier in the day and then attempted to cover up the murder by staging it to look like a car accident. Yeah, did he use the trash bags in the scene he of the He used it in the cleanup. He did. Okay. So I was, yes. I was curious about that. Okay. So they believed that plan A was successfully pulling off that it looks like an accident in that plan B was that he already was conceiving of an insanity defense before he was even caught as his plan B. Debbie's sister, who now had custody of Annika, thank goodness, testified that a few weeks before the murder, Bruce had said to her rather cryptically, I think you'll have a child within the year. 
And she now worried that that alluded to the fact that he had been planning Debbie's murder because they had just named her as Annika's guardian. Yeah. Murder-suicide, potentially. Yes. But on the other hand, Bruce's attorney argued that Annika's sister had been actively trying to have a child. So that's something you say to somebody who's trying to get pregnant. Like, oh, I bet it's going to happen soon. That's what the, the attorney tried to say. Bruce's attorney went full bore for the insanity defense, claiming that Bruce had heard voices that told him to kill himself. And so he was planning on killing himself, but he didn't want Debbie to suffer after he was gone so that he had to kill her as well to spare her the emotional pain. The defense claimed that Bruce made nearly $200,000 a year. Why would he kill her for the insurance money when he could have made that amount in only a couple of short years? Bruce's history of disordered thinking and the messy crime scene were evidence of a long-term mental illness triggered by one horrific act that shook Bruce's faith as a doctor and as a human. So that's their argument. The jury debated for nearly four days. At that point, the attorneys were worried that the jury would be hung and that a mistrial would be granted. On Friday, October 30th, 1998, they finally reached their decision. Dr. Bruce Rowan was determined to have killed his wife, but was not guilty due to insanity. The jury determined, though, that Bruce was still a danger to others and should be locked up in a highly restricted mental institution. It's very confusing, not guilty due to insanity. Yeah. The way that they delivered the verdict, too, was like the judge asked, do you say that Bruce Rohn killed his wife? They said, yes. Do you believe he is guilty? Not guilty by reasons of insanity. Yeah. It's like guilty, but he's insane is what it should be. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Guilty, but he's insane. Yes. Yeah. So. This was clearly a huge win for Bruce and his family, but absolutely devastating to Debbie's family. The jury foreman spoke to a reporter, though, and said that they fully believed that Bruce had not known right from wrong at the time of the murder. Mm. Yeah, I don't like this one. (laughs) I don't like it. I really don't like it. Don't. I I know that you can't count on like reviews and comment sections, but I did look at what people thought on Amazon after reading the book. And there were a couple doctors who I think there was one doctor who said, I'm a physician and they should have had an expert on malingering because this was a doctor who had gone through a psych rotation that had gone through med school that knew exactly how to appear to have a history of mental illness. And so some people really do believe that this potentially could have just been somebody who was very clever. Who knows? I don't know. I just know I don't like what happened with the verdict and I don't like where it ended up. He ended up getting remanded to a secure mental health facility for an undetermined amount of time. They basically said, until you're well. And then is he still there? No, but we'll get into that in a little bit. It's Dr. Turner's turn. We got to talk about Dr. Turner, too, before we can talk about the end. By the time Dr. Turner went to trial or was about to go to trial, a lot had changed. The county prosecutor who had been gunning for both doctors to be put behind bars was ousted during his reelection, which they think this trial with Dr. Bruce Rowan had something to do with it because it was considered a loss, obviously, that he was found not guilty for whatever reason. And the new prosecutor had way less of an interest in trying Dr. Turner for Connor's murder. 
The new prosecutor consulted with a number of medical experts to try to get to the bottom of what exactly had happened to baby Connor. Well, most of the doctors agreed that Dr. Turner had mishandled the baby's care. Most also agreed that there was a strong likelihood that Dr. Turner had been correct in assuming that Connor was already brain dead by the time he took over trying to save his life. It doesn't matter, though. I mean, that's the point. It shouldn't have been his choice. As for what had actually stopped Connor from breathing, what had triggered the event, a pediatric neurologist was called in and determined that Connor likely had an underlying nervous system issue that contributed to a tragic sudden infant death syndrome-like death. So obviously nothing that Marty and Michelle could have done at all. And potentially maybe something that the doctors could not have brought him back from. Dr. Glass, the pediatric neurologist, went on to say that the little gasp of breath that Nurse Lori had heard did not actually indicate that Connor was coming back to life. Dr. Glass wrote, The reappearance of gasping respirations following a cessation of resuscitation such as this is exceedingly common. In his own practice, Glass said he had seen this phenomenon before, but he always told the parents that it was to be expected and that nothing would change the prognosis of a quick death. This is the case for Connor, Glass wrote. These gasping respirations do not indicate return from the dead or some type of miracle that any one of us would like to have this become. Rather, they are primitive, reflexive, and largely ineffective attempts that originate from the brainstem. A parallel example might be the heart of an animal such as a frog or any number of animals, which, when removed from the body, continues to beat. It was tragic, Glass added, that Marty and Michelle should ever have been given to understand that Connor was coming back to life. In actuality, he never had a chance. Turner's decision to cover Connor's nose and mouth, while not normal practice, was understandable under the circumstances, Dr. Glass believed, as Turner intended only to relieve others' suffering and not to kill anyone. The question is if he killed him, if he was already dead? I mean, he's comparing this baby to a frog with its heart out, which I don't... If the baby is already dead and that is just like primitive behavior of the body responding after whatever happening, I feel like then just let the baby die. You don't need to cover its nose. If it's already dead and it's going to die, I agree. then why do you need to cover yep. its nose? I mean, I agree with you completely. But I think that this was just too messy of a case for the new prosecutor after they reviewed all the statements they decided not to pursue a criminal case of murder against dr eugene turner the prosecutor said that it did not seem likely that a jury could be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that dr turner had ended the baby's life at all if they have all these medical professionals saying legally he was already dead but then even moreover he didn't believe that a jury would be convinced that there was any sort of malice or intention behind ending the baby's life. So it was just going to be a hard case to win. And the prosecutor, I'm sure, also didn't want to deal with the public outcry against it. That was not stated as a reason. I'm just inferring that you're a brand new county prosecutor and you don't want to go against this guy that's so widely beloved. More importantly and most importantly, what did Michelle and Marty think, though? This is their baby. I think it's really hard to say. They only participated in certain amounts of reporting and questioning about this. And 
I think that it's just monumentally painful to think about. And I'm sure that some part of you would be relieved, but this is my speculation, that it's not going to be a huge thing anymore. I mean, going to trial and then having him acquitted, I think might be worse than not going to trial at all, but I don't know. We obviously haven't been in this situation. Did Dr. Turner continue practice after this? The prosecutor handed over the case to the Medical Quality Assurance Commission to determine the future of Dr. Turner's medical license, and he was cleared of all criminal charges. I think he was pretty close to retirement at that point anyway. So I'm not sure. He might have practiced a little bit longer, but I'm not sure exactly like how long he was suspended or what exactly happened. But nothing in the, the criminal justice system happened to him. I mean, it seems like they, him and his wife had so many other things that they could focus their attention on too, that if it was time for him to retire, it seemed like they had a lot of other things that they could focus their energy and time on. He's still alive. So is his wife. They're still doing work in the community. I think that they have a scholarship for kids in the community as well. There's some hits on the on the old Google about things that they're still in the news for. So it looks like they're still out there. He's certainly not practicing medicine anymore. But it, it didn't look like it was super recent, so I'm sure that he did after that, after little Connor died before another retirement. Does he have any sort of comment on, like, whether he wished he didn't do it or he just stands completely by? He stands by what he did. I think he said, and I'm paraphrasing this, at one point he said something like, would I do it again? No, but not not because I think I did anything wrong, but because it obviously hurt so many other people and it has become such a huge thing and it's hurt so many people and it's hurt people that care about me and I care about and everything and it hurt Marty and Michelle. Like, I wouldn't do the same thing knowing what I know now, but it doesn't mean what I think I did was wrong. Exactly. Okay. Bruce Rowan was released from his mental health facility in 2005, so less than seven years for the axe murder of his loving wife. Debbie's family was able to make sure that Bruce would never be able to contact Annika as the condition of his release, and he agreed to that through his attorney. I do not believe Bruce ever practiced medicine again. He tried to get his license reinstated, and it was denied. Looks like he moved back to his hometown, and that is where he died in 2014 when he was 49 or 50 years old, but I do not know what he died of. His obituary did not say. Michelle and Marty did go on to get a settlement from the hospital. And though I do not know what they were awarded, I do know that it sure was not enough. No. And it could never have been. Well, thanks for joining me, Andy, for this super downer first episode of Love Murder. Yeah. Wow. That was an important story for many reasons. Yes. But yeah. Let's get back to some like cocaine doing <laughs> we, need, cheating. we need the dirty cheating yeah. cocaine doing wild <laughs> goal for twenty twenty three. More we need drugs. Like a, a good, we need a good old gold digger up in here. We haven't had one yeah, of those maybe for a Black while. Widow, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I'm actually going to be doing the calendar for all of the cases coming up. This was the end of my last like three month planned calendar. So. That means that I've heard you loud and clear, and we're going to go back to stories that are a little less intense and make us question the fabric of society, and maybe we'll go back to one of those. Stories that are <laughs> grandiose as some of their hairdos. Yes, exactly. We'll go back to that. Well, thank you guys for joining us, and thank you for coming into what is our third year of Love Murder. In July, it'll be three years, so 
We just love you all so much and we can't thank you enough for being with us. In conclusion, we are in a very dark time in the world right now, everyone. I mean, literally dark. It's the darkest time of the year. And so based on this episode, but just also life in our own struggles, we would really hope that if you need help, that you would have the bravery to seek it out. Yeah. And if you find it hard to seek out help for yourself, just remember there you could always seek out help for yourself to help others because there's other people around who love you and would always be there to support you as well. Absolutely. Okay. Love you guys. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Bye. Bye.